0: 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, Peter writes, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy If you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed But let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin in the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God Commit their souls to Him and doing good as to a faithful Creator. Peter has focused on God's grace in suffering. And in this chapter, Peter reminds us that suffering purifies the saints in verses 1 through 6, it unifies the church in verses 7 through 11 it glorifies the Lord in verses 12 through 19. And so as you can imagine, when we're asking and answering the question of the purpose or the reason or the rhyme behind much of the trial, much of the tribulation, much of the suffering, there seems to be a component of purity and unity and glory involved. It was John Stott who wrote, the fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the greatest single challenge to the Christian faith. And remember Peter's audience. Peter's audience are Christians, They're going through a desperate trial. They're going through mind-numbing suffering. They're going through a critical circumstance. And some are unwanted and some are undeserved. Some appear to be unfair. Some might even be self-inflicted. And so it is with you, perhaps. When you hear the diagnosis of cancer... Or you hear about the problem or the pain or the suffering or the issue or the trial and you wonder how in the world could this possibly be happening. But trials are not electives in the course that we call life. Trials are required and God's diploma is Christ likeness. There was a wonderful book called The Problem of Pain. It was written by C.S. Lewis, and I read it for the first time almost 30 years ago. I've reread it since. He has a lot to say about the role of trials in our lives, and in his book, I found and remembered that he wrote, quote, I am progressing along the path of, of life in my ordinary contentedly fallen and godless condition absorbing, absorbed in a merry meeting with my friends for the morrow or a bit of work that tickles my vanity today, a holiday, a new book, when suddenly a stab of abdominal pain that threatens serious disaster, or a headline in the newspapers that threatens us all with destruction, sends the whole pack of cards tumbling down. At first I'm overwhelmed, and all my little happinesses look like broken toys, then slowly and reluctantly, bit by bit, I try to bring myself into the frame of mind that I should have been at all times. I remind myself that all these toys were never intended to possess my heart. That my true good is in another world and my only real treasure is Christ. And perhaps by God's grace, I succeed and for a day or two become A creature consciously dependent on God and drawing its strength from the right sources. For the moment the threat is withdrawn, my whole nature leaps back to the toys, unquote. How like human beings, isn't it? It's when the trial or the pain or the suffering comes that we, in conscious revelation, say, Wow, I guess I need to humble myself. I guess I need to cry out to God. I guess I need to depend upon the Lord. Would to God that all of us, in humility and honesty and dependency, (laughs) would love him and trust him and humble ourselves and depend upon him before the trial appears. But sometimes the trial is necessary. Look again in verse 12. Peter writes, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. In verse 12, you'll notice the word strange appears twice. The word means foreign or alien. It's present passive imperative. And so in the ancient world of the Greeks, they would often use this same word to translate the expression surprise or surprised. It's the word xenidzo. And I know that that word doesn't mean a whole lot to you, but it's from the root word xenos, which means stranger. And in this particular instance, when it says xenizo, it it, it has the idea of being something where where you're at a loss. As in our culture, some thought that the fiery trial or the suffering could only come as a result of punishment or, or judgment. Now, let me pause for a moment and remind you of something. You don't always have control of the fiery trial. You don't always have input concerning the persecution or the test or the suffering. But do you know what you always have control of? Always, without exception, your response. You are in charge of your response. You have been given a wonderful privilege. God, in his grace and his mercy, has given you the ability to respond to pain and to respond to trial and to respond to suffering in a way that honors him or dishonors him. Now, Peter begins by giving us a proper reaction to suffering and persecution. And I need you to understand something, and I need you to understand it with all of your heart and all of your might. Peter's life, there was a time in Peter's life where he actually did think it strange concerning the fiery trial. Most of you are familiar with Matthew's gospel. In chapter 16, verses 21 through 23, it says that Jesus began to show his disciples how he must go to Jerusalem, how he must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. And you'll remember the Bible says, then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, be it far from you, Lord, that this should happen to you. Peter's response to Jesus was, was this can't be right. This can't be right. Do you remember Jesus' response? Did he say, oh, Peter, dude, you're just confused a little bit. Or, Peter, dude, you, you're, you're just misunderstanding the circumstance. Do you remember Jesus' response? Get behind me, Satan. That's a little harsh, isn't it? No. Peter's previous position was a satanic view of suffering. Do you know why it was a satanic view of suffering? Because Peter couldn't bring himself to believe that God would allow somebody like Jesus to be arrested inappropriately. To suffer undeservedly. To be tortured and arrested and killed. He never got past the, 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 the position where Jesus said, oh, by the way, I'm going to come back to life. You see, the ungodly hate holiness and they despise the light. And I wish I could say that I always had a right view of suffering, but it just simply wouldn't be true. There was a time in my life where I was the first person to wave my finger at the Christian who was telling me about Jesus and say, hey, if God is real and if Jesus is real, then you explain to me the problem of suffering. You explain to me why God allows people to be hurt and why he allows them to be neglected and why he allows them to to suffer. Explain to me why parents split up. Explain to me how children get sexually assaulted. Explain to me about the problems and the abuse and the suffering and the pain explain it to me because it made no sense to me Because I had no idea, I really didn't believe that there was a God who was in control of all things at all times. And that God was at work and he was making wrong things right. He was making a mechanism so that human beings could be forgiven and and reconciled to God. The reality is most Christians do ask the age old question, why is this happening to me? And Peter knows that the same mind with the same suffering will bring the same results. And in context, the fiery trial probably refers to state-sponsored arrest and torture and execution of the followers of Jesus. By the way, the famous fire in Rome occurs over a nine-day period in the summer of 64. I'm going to suggest to you that this epistle was written right around that time. It might have been a few months, it might have been a few weeks before or after the fiery blaze. Roman scholars suggest that the city's narrow streets and crowded wooden apartments burned quickly and violently. And according to most Roman historians, the vast majority of Roman citizens believed that Nero had something to do with setting the plays or allowing the plays to consume the impoverished neighborhoods so that he could build a better Rome. And according to tradition, Nero watched Rome burn from the tower of Messinaeus. You know the story. Some suggest that he played his lyre as Rome burned. Nero's watching videos while Rome begins to burn. Here's the point. Many people lost all of their earthly goods. Some lost their lives. They were angry and bitter, and they began to turn their attentions towards Nero. And in order to deflect attention, Nero turned his attentions to the Christians and blamed them. Blame the Christians. Blame the Christians. By the way, were Christians causing problems in Rome? Uh, Yeah. They stopped attending local temples. They stopped purchasing meat products from local markets that had been offered to idols. They were seen as being divisive in the family. They were at the heart of family, social, and religious problems. John MacArthur writes, quote, Today, hostility towards Christians who speak out against the culture's sins and defense of the exclusivity of the gospel is on the rise. Therefore, to endure the present hostility as, as to what might come in the future, believers need to heed this passage's instructions on what it means to endure trial, unquote. Now think about it, they're blamed then, they're blamed now. Christians are blamed for murdering abortion providers. Christians are blamed for the epidemic of homosexual teen suicides. Christians are blamed for radical Muslim hostility along with the Jews. Christians are blamed for the Crusades. They're blamed for the Inquisition. They're blamed for the extermination of Native American populations. They're blamed for conservative political views. They're blamed for anti-scientific thinking. They're blamed for (laughs) cheesy television. Okay, we have to admit guilt to the cheesy television part. <laughs> Guilty! Guilty is charged. You see, the reality for many people is that innocence and holiness and belief are all the excuses that people might need in order to blame you. Peter writes in verse 13, he says, But rejoice. To the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. In other words, Peter invites the reader to proceed past the question of why and to embrace with wholehearted gladness and exceeding joy. As a matter of fact, partake here, it means to share. It's, it's a very specific word in the original language, Koineo, it is the same word where we get koinonia, it means to partake, but it means to partake at a level that all can share. Here, the participation and the partaking, there isn't an an option where the rich get to opt out, but the poor have to stay in. It isn't where the super spiritual get to opt out, but the people who are carnal or immature have to stay in. The participation and the partaking means that we share and we share alike and that no one is immune from the participation and no one gets exempted and no one is excused. In James chapter 1, James writing on this very same subject in chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James reminds us, the trial, the suffering, the persecution is common. What does that mean? It can take a physical form. It can take an emotional form. It can take a financial form. It can take a relational form. It can take a spiritual form. These are the various trials. Trials put our faith to the test. And you may not like that. And you may not welcome that. How dare you test my faith? How dare you test my faith? Belief. Guess what? The testing of your faith and your belief isn't for the purpose of satisfying God. He knows everything about everything and he knows the truth about your heart. The person who must understand and embrace faith is you. You need to know the truth about what you really believe. You need to know the truth about what you really believe about Jesus, about his life and about his death and about his resurrection. You may have hinted at and you may have wondered if when the trial comes, when the test comes, when the storm blows, whether you will be able to weather the storm And pass the test. But guess what? For the Christian who sees the test as unwanted, unnecessary, and unwelcome. Guess what? You're suggesting that you know more than God does. And look what Peter writes. He continues in verse 14 and he says, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, on their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. Peter gives the believers response to trial, but he also gives the believers something to remember about the trial. And some people characterize their trial or suffering or difficulty as evidence that God isn't there and that God doesn't care and that God has forsaken them. And Peter's response is exactly the opposite. Not so. Jesus is near. He's always near. When Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you, he meant it. When Jesus said, I will be with you, and I will be in you. But Peter's point is that the presence of Jesus is very near and very special. When we are reviled, when we are reproached for the name of Jesus. And by the way, here reproached means to bear the burden of continuous insults. That's what it means. It's when statement after statement after statement after statement. You idiot. You stupid idiot. you. What, what, what are you thinking being a Jesus freak? What are, what are you talking about Jesus follower? Don't you understand that the Bible is a book about myths and superstitions in order to satisfy a people's unpleasant reality about death? Here's what the unbeliever And the make-believer will will have you believe. Hey, you know, all of this religious stuff, it's all well and good. But take it with a grain of salt. Do you realize that there are so-called Christians who will make fun of you if you actually believe that the first 11 chapters of Genesis is true? If you really believe that a sea creature came and swallowed Jonah? If you really believe in the miracles of the Bible... And, of course, the biggest miracle of all, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Blessed are you, Peter writes. That means to consider blessed. The word was used in the classic Greek language to mean divine blessings bestowed through supernatural powers. Peter isn't talking about human happiness. He's not talking about warm, fuzzy feelings that well up inside of your heart as you're going through the cancer radiation treatment. He's not talking about the chemicals that burn you from the inside out. He's not talking about the radiation treatment that causes all of the hair to fall out of your head. He's not talking about the doctor's visits. He's not talking about The pain and the sorrow and the nausea. He's talking about the quiet confidence that comes when you know that a true and a living God is in charge of every moment of every day of your life and of everything that happens to you. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I was listening to a program of a fairly famous Christian comedian. And he was talking about his experience with a young man who was diagnosed with a terminal disease. And it's his job and his circumstances that he likes to laugh through most difficulties. And he found himself having lunch with this 22-year-old person who was diagnosed with a fatal disease and all of his hair had come out and his name was Ken Ken said I just started crying and the young man lunged across the table and he says why are you crying he goes what's wrong he goes do I make you feel uncomfortable he said are you sad because I'm dying He said, Ken, I've got news for you. You're dying too. You're going to die. My death is just a little bit more predictable. But make no mistake about it. You're going to die as well. And here's your choice. You can live today or not live today. You can love today or not love today. You can believe today or not believe today. You can trust today or not trust today. But I'm going to live today and I'm going to love today and I'm going to trust today. I'm going to love the Lord. I'm going to believe in him. He's redeemed me and forgiven me and reconciled me. He rejoiced. We live in a world where we're brought up to believe that the highest privilege that we can experience as human beings is to escape the pain, escape the hardship, escape the trial, escape the suffering, escape the loss. How many times have you began a conversation with, I thank God that I've never had to experience the loss of, and then you fill in the blank. Am I suggesting that that you hope and pray that you get to lose your parents or lose a child or be diagnosed with cancer? That is not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is, are you willing to trust the true and the living God with every moment of every day with every person in your family, with every organ in your body? What if you've been wrong all along? What if the greatest privilege is to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ? Peter remembers the words of Jesus and recalls those times when the presence of the Holy Spirit was powerful and the presence of God's strength was powerful and the presence of God's glory was powerful. And again, for those of you who may be new to Christianity and all of this is so, so different from anything that you ever thought, the word glory remains, remember, it means the sum and the substance of everything that makes God, God. We can refuse the suffering that results from personal disobedience. That's what he says in verse 15. Look again for yourself. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a busybody (laughs) in other people's matters. Now, clearly, there's little value in suffering the consequences of sin. Now, notice I said little value. I didn't say no value whatsoever. Do we sometimes suffer for the consequences of personal disobedience? What do you think that the answer is? Look, I I won't speak for you, I'll speak for me. I'd be lying to you if I said, Oh, guess what? I've gotten away with everything. The reality? God in His grace and His mercy won't let me get away with anything. Peter reminds the reader... To avoid the hardship and trial that comes when we've made bad decisions and and bad choices and sinful circumstances. Philip Yancey writes, the Bible traces the entrance of suffering and evil into the world to a grand but terrible quality of human beings. Freedom! What does he mean by that? Sometimes we can choose to disobey God. Sometimes we can choose to dishonor God. Sometimes we can dishonor and disobey, and we can do exactly the opposite of what we know to be right. Last night on the news, there was an amazing story. A young man was wearing a a sandwich board. He was standing at the side of of a busy intersection, and on the sandwich board, it read, I lied to my mom and I stole from her. It was his punishment. This young man had lied to his mother about stealing her credit card and then making charges on his mother's credit card. Here's what he told the camera. He said, I stupidly believed that I could get away with it. So the mother said, you have two choices. I'm going to call the police and I am going to charge you with a crime. Or you can wear the sandwich board. I lied to my mother and I stole from my mother. And you can wear it at a a busy intersection for six hours. The young man chose, well, okay, arrest conviction, stand with a sandwich board for six hours in front of a busy intersection. Now, obviously, the news picked it up and so tens of thousands of more people got to see. Be sure that your sin will find you out. But you know what the, the young man said? I'm sufficiently motivated not to lie to my mom or, or, or steal from her. <laughs> His younger brother? I'm sufficiently motivated not to lie to mom or to steal from her. Now, this, it is funny, but there's something that's not particularly funny. There are people who are listening to my voice right now And they're more upset that their mother shamed her son than that the son lied to and stole from his mother. Maybe that's you. Maybe at this very moment there's something inside of you that you're thinking, wait a minute, this is this kind of shameful treatment. I I don't know if I'm good with that. That you are more concerned about that boy's feeling than the reality that he's a liar and a thief, and that lying and stealing is going to lead irreparably in a direction that could cost him his life. Do I always know what constitutes the right punishment or the right shame? Peter points out the hard truth that sometimes our suffering is deserved and shameful. And that there's something fundamentally wrong with us. When we think because of God's grace and God's mercy and God's love and God's generosity, that it gives us permission to act in any way that we want to. God God in his grace and his wisdom and his power, he has given us the ability to choose or choose otherwise from an array of options and we can choose to obey God and we can choose to to obey the law of God or we can disobey the law of God and obey the law of sin in our members and reject what Jesus has done. But part of the point of the passage is you have this wonderful opportunity and the wonderful opportunity is that you can resist and reject sin and embrace God and the power of his Holy Spirit and say, Lord, by the grace that you've been given me and the mercy that's been shown to me, I'm going to honor you and obey you. And it's interesting to me, it's interesting to me that Peter lumps the murderer and the thief and the evildoer with the busybody. Can you imagine? What are you in for? Murder. What are you in for? Thief. What are you in for, evildoer? What are you in for, Budinsky? (laughs) Wow. That's pretty dramatic. It's interesting because the word only appears here in the Greek New Testament. And it's a compound word that apparently Peter has made up because it's never been seen in any regular Greek literature, either classic or common. It's two words that have been put together, meaning to belong to each other and oversee. But it can be translated troublesome meddler, or a person who sticks their nose where it doesn't belong. I have a friend who's a pastor of a fairly large church. And he was telling us a story about when the saints get to heaven and they talk about the suffering that they experienced. How Isaiah was sawn in half. How Jeremiah found himself in the bottom of a pit. How Stephen is stoned how Peter is crucified upside down, and then it's his turn. (laughs) Bob, how did you suffer? I, I got letters, mean letters, criticizing me and my ministry. Oh. Okay. How have you suffered? What horrible terrible test has taken place in your life to try your faith, to confirm your confidence. Peter says, refuse the kind of suffering that results from being wrong, from being disobedient. And then he says, embrace the consequences of following Jesus. Look at verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Now think about what he's saying. Peter points out the glorious and gracious truth that most suffering experienced as a follower of Jesus Christ in no way should cause us to feel shame. Why? What is the Christian's response to trial and suffering? Peter is basically saying feel honored. We use it as an opportunity to glorify the Lord. When we're laughed at, when we're ridiculed at school or at work because we love and serve the Lord, our response should be you're kidding me, right? This what an honor. What a privilege. We're placed in prison because we love Jesus. What an honor. We're beaten and bruised because of Jesus. What an honor! What a glorious privilege to bear the wounds for Him who was pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And so, what example does the apostle provide for us when they themselves suffered for Jesus? Remember in Acts chapter 5, verse 40, it says, And they agreed with him. And when they called for the apostles and beaten him, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer shame for his name. It's so countercultural. God places us in a position where we get to identify with Jesus. Wouldn't it be great? Haven't you ever prayed, Lord, I want to come to that place in my maturity where suffering for your sake brings me a sense of relief and excitement And joy. And look what it says. We can accept persecution as the purifying agent or the purifying judgment of God. Look in verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? I'm going to suggest to you that Peter seems to be making a reference from the Old Testament, from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, where Ezekiel wrote, To the others, he, speaking of God, said in my hearing, go after them through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare, nor have pity. Utterly slay the old and the young, maidens and men, children and women, but do not come near anyone who bears the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were... Before the temple, it was a prophecy. The prophecy was that the Assyrians were going to come down. And that they were going to displace the northern kingdom. And a prophecy was going to take place. The southern kingdom would be challenged and persecuted and taken eventually by the Babylonians. That they would come into the city of Jerusalem and that they would take people even from the steps of the temple. Persecution is divinely permitted to purge the believer and to serve as a warning of judgment on the ungodly. And so here the house of God probably means the household of God or the family of God or those people who participate in the covenant of Christ. Now think of the message Peter brings to those who are facing trial. The suffering, the pain, the persecution provides us with an opportunity to trust the Lord, to draw on the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Next, Peter tells us that some, Some of our suffering may be deserved and shameful. Then he reminds us that most of our suffering as Christians should neither be deserved nor shameful. And he brings in this powerful new element that suffering is according to God's time and according to God's plan and according to God's purpose and that it will eventually bring about God's plan. And that it will eventually perfect God's purpose. So why in the world would judgment begin in the house of God? You sing the song. If Jesus paid it all, if all to him I owe, if sin is left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow, why does there have to be any judgment at all in the house of God? And clearly, Peter is suggesting that the house of God needs more than just some dusting or some light touch-up or cleaning. That the house of God may need some radical cleaning. Some wholesale purging. some, Some specific cleansing. By the way, let me ask you a question. Does scandal sometimes find its way to the church? So what's your reaction to scandal? What's your reaction? Is it fear? Is it disgust? Is it disillusionment? What do you say when Christians as well as non-Christians say, well, what about the priests who molest children? What about the pastors who solicit sex in exchange for money or gifts or power or who... who Steal the money from the church and run away with the secretary. What do you say when people point the finger at ministers who accumulate millions of dollars on religious schemes and false claims of prosperity or healing? What do you say to them? Did it ever occur to you that perhaps God doesn't want us to sweep our failure and our hypocrisy under the collective carpet labeled Christianity, but wants us to purge it and cleanse it so that it's not named among us? Yes, there's revolt and yes, there's disgust. But does the fact that people take advantage of Christ and Christianity, does that cause me to say, oh, then the Bible's not true and Christianity is not real and Jesus isn't the Lord? No. In verse 18, Peter says, now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? The expression scarcely saved is from a Greek term which means with hardship or difficulty or scarcely. What's the point that he's making? Whatever light of affliction, whatever suffering, whatever we are experiencing in the here and now cannot be compared to the suffering that will be experienced by the ungodly and the sinner. That's what he's saying. Particularly for that person who can't bring themselves to believe that God will allow the saint to suffer in this life. Or the ungodly who lives their life under the illusion and delusion that there's no consequence for sin and rebellion. You know, I know people who have sat in front of me, who've come to my office. I've had numerous conversations with people who say, I don't believe in a God who would send anyone to hell. So you don't believe in a righteous God. You don't believe in a God who is holy and righteous. You don't believe in a God who allows sin to be neglected and never dealt with. So you believe in a God who is not just. I didn't say that. Well, then how do you explain God's perfect love God's perfect mercy, God's perfect justice if there's never a consequence for sin? And the right answer has to be God is completely satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus. Your life, your sin is cleansed. But for the person who rejects Christ, for the person who embraces their circumstances and want to be judged on the basis of what they've really done, then they're going to have to embrace the consequences of having offended not just a holy God and not just a just God, but a holy and a just God who is self-existent and eternal. And so, Peter writes... In verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Do you understand what he said? We can continue to do good and commit our souls to a faithful creator. It's his way of saying, Look, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls. Question. Does God allow Christians to suffer? Apparently. How else can we explain Peter's message? To expect suffering in verse 12, to exalt in suffering in verse 13, to evaluate our suffering to see whether it's self-inflicted or for honoring and obeying Jesus. Peter is very clear. If anyone suffers as a Christian, that suffering qualifies us for the blessing of the presence and the empowering Holy Spirit and that we need not feel ashamed. The word ashamed can also be dishonored. Rather, we're given permission to glorify the name of God. And so first century Christians referred to each other as brethren and saints and followers of the way. People in the first century didn't call each other Christians. So, by the way, the word Christian only appears three times in the New Testament. And one of them right here in this passage. When Peter uses the term Christian in this context, it's a pejorative. In this sense, people called people Christians to mock them, to make fun of them. It's the same thing when we use the term Jesus freak. Oh, you Jesus freak. And then the Jesus freak said, I'll take that. Yes. Call me Jesus freak. I like that. I embrace that. That's the point. We're to entrust our suffering to God in verse 19. And by the way, what does that mean? The key word is commit or entrust. The entrusting or the committing manifests itself in doing good in the midst of trial. In other words, the word commit or entrust is a banking term. It meant to safely deposit something of value in someone else's keeping. That's the idea. When you give someone your money, you're rightly concerned about their character and the ability of that person to be a good steward of the resources that you've entrusted to them. The point that Peter is making is you've entrusted your life to God. You've entrusted your circumstance to God. You've entrusted your health to God. You've entrusted your job to God. You've entrusted your marriage to God. You've entrusted every moment of every day, of every relationship, of the country that you're living in, and the time that you're living in, and the circumstances that you're living in. Your health, your circumstances, everything about you has been entrusted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. In 1936 and in 1956 when they crowned King George and when they crowned Queen Elizabeth, the Archbishop of Canterbury took the, the, the crown and placed it on the monarch's head and then turned to the citizens of the British Commonwealth. And said, acknowledge your sovereign and crown him king or queen. When you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you placed a crown on Jesus' head and you acknowledged his lordship in your life. Your life has been given to him and is a stewardship for him. Chuck Swindoll writes, quote, "The furnace of suffering provides not only light by which to examine our lives, but heat to melt away the dross." Just like famine and financial ruin of the prodigal son, trials are what bring us back to our senses and back to the Lord. And the common response to trials is one of resistance, if not outright resentment. But we should open the door of our hearts and welcome them as honored guests for the good that they do in our lives. So, are you prepared? Are you prepared for the fiery ordeal? Trial or suffering or persecution serves as the measure of our faith. Trial, suffering proves our trust in God and teaches us to depend upon him. Trial and persecution proves, strengthens, patience, endurance. Trial, suffering proves faith and attracts others to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Part of the point seems to be why do you respond the way that you do? Why do you choose to love and honor God when your life is so hard and your circumstances seem so cruel? How is it that you can love him so much from what looks like a pile of ashes? The answer because this life and this circumstance isn't the end. The final statement is yet to be made. The final judgment is yet to occur. The final reward is yet to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray for that person who finds themselves in difficult circumstances. Lord, how can we honor you? How can we praise you? How can we rejoice in the circumstances that we find ourselves in? Lord, how can we experience the purity that you desire and the unity that you desire and the glory that you require? And Lord, we know that in your sovereign grace and your mercy, Lord, you allow things to happen. Lord, we pray that, that we would allow those things to purify us and unify us and to glorify you. Lord, we pray. We pray, we pray, we pray. Not just simply for strength, but for confidence. That the Lord who has begun the good work in us will see it until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That life is better than death. And that love is is better than fear and that hope is better than despair. And Lord, we pray that we would be granted our diploma (laughs) in the not too distant future, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.